Which games do I recommend most often? My name's Jonathan, and this is the Snakes Cast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about games as they'd like to know. This week, I'll be starting the show's first ever top 10 list, and I don't think it's quite like any other top 10 you've heard before. Welcome back to the Snakes Cast, everyone. It's just me this week. Hope you don't mind. Working at Snakes and Lattes, I get asked, can you recommend a fun game, or can you recommend a good game, or can you recommend a simple game about umpty million times a shift? And it's a question that I've developed a sort of a pat answer for, where I sort of get people to explain what they mean by fun, what they mean by good, what they mean by simple. And it is different for everyone, and I try my best to listen and really get a clear sense of what they're looking for before I make my recommendations. And... For the most part, those recommendations wind up being very individual, as much so as the people who I recommend them for. But there are certain games that I keep returning to over and over again, certain games that are just so useful or so versatile, so good at introducing people who are just not interested in something complicated to the idea that games can actually be interesting, more so than Snakes and Ladders or Monopoly or something like that, without taking ages to learn how to play, without having up to a million pieces on the board. I mean... For this sort of person, something like Ticket to Ride looks really complicated, and they'll tell you so. But something like Snakes and Ladders is too insultingly simple, plus they've played it before, and frankly, I get tired of teaching the same ultra-simple games over and over. But there are certain games I don't mind teaching over and over again. And if you often find yourself in that same position of having to sort of win over the skeptics, having to convince them that no, you can start playing this game pretty much right away, and it's not going to be like anything that you used to before, this top 10 list might be useful for you as well. So here we go. My personal top 10 board game recommendations for people who haven't played a game since they were 10 years old and have no idea whatsoever what they want. Number 10. One of the things that most often manages to get a good response from people who quote-unquote just want something fun is bringing them something stressful, something that's going to freak them out, that's going to have them panicking and the thing about making mistakes and panicking and freaking out is that it makes people laugh. You know, people say, I want a game that's going to make me laugh. Well, games aren't funny. Players are funny. And players are especially funny when they're making terrible, dumb mistakes. And few games you can get out there and get people playing in a moment of minutes will generate quite as many hilarious screw-ups as Ghost Blitz. Now, Ghost Blitz, for those who haven't played before, is a reflex game. It's a game where you have a collection of five objects in front of you, a white ghost, a red chair, a green bottle, a blue book, and a gray mouse. And a card gets turned up, and everybody looks at this card and tries to figure out which object it's telling them to grab. And if you grab the right thing and you grab it first, you get to keep the card. Card's worth one point each. But I always make the rule so that if you grab the wrong thing, there's no takesies-backsies. You can't put it back and pick up something else. And also, every time you mess up, the person who got it right this time gets to steal one of your cards. And we just keep turning over cards one at a time till the deck is gone, count how many you wound up with, and the player with the most cards wins. Now sometimes, occasionally, it's simple. Like it'll, the card will have a picture of a white ghost and a green chair. Well, the chair is wrong. The chair is not green, the chair is red. But the ghost is actually white. So the first person to grab this little wooden ghost and lift it up off the table gets to keep the card. So much for the easy ones. Thing is, though, most of the time, they're not easy. Most of the time, both the objects on the card are going to be wrong. So you'll have a little picture of a, a green mouse and a red bottle. Now, in that case, what you have to do is you have to find the one thing that's missing. Find the one thing that's not green and not red and not a mouse and not a bottle. And only the ghost fits that description. You pick up anything else, you were wrong. 
What I love about Ghost Blitz, and what to me separates it from other reflex games like Jungle Speed or even Halligally, which I'm a huge fan of, is that that having to change mental gears between finding the thing that's there and finding the thing that's missing creates so many wonderful giggle-inducing mistakes. You just get so used to looking for the missing thing that when a card comes up or something actually is the right color and everybody's desperately looking for what's missing, wait a minute, there's two different things that are missing, and then somebody goes, no, wait, the book is actually blue and picks it up. Ah, that moment and having to switch back and forth between those creates the kind of laughter, meaning the kind of mistakes, that people who want a game that's quote-unquote just fun are really looking for, whether they realize it or not. Number nine. Plenty of people ask for trivia games. The thing is, though, that um, here's the problem with trivia games. Trivia games are designed basically for people who don't like games. And, you know, that's fine if you don't like games. More power to you. Not everybody's into it. But for a person like me, I, I, I just can't help it. I feel a little piece of my soul dying every time that somebody faces yet another quiz of, do you know the answer to this? Do you know the answer to this? Do you know the answer to this? And every time you're right, you get another question. And every time you're wrong, your turn is over. There are, just, there are only so many iterations of that that I can stomach before I kind of... Um, start to feel bad. But here's the thing, though. There's a few trivia games out there that have an actual game built into them. Now, many of those games, like Wits and Wagers, for example, require a certain number of players. Ideally, five or six if you're going to do Wits and Wagers. But there's a few, most notably Timeline, that do just as well with two or three as they do with four or five. And that's why Timeline is the trivia game that I go with most often. The addition of Timeline that I like best, the one that I use the most, is Timeline Inventions. That's because Inventions is such a wonderfully neutral subject. I mean, I don't know anybody who's an expert on Inventions. So that way, everybody feels equally lost. Everybody feels equally dumb. And again, you remember what happens when you make mistakes in games. With, with trivia games, I find that people tend to take it a bit more personally. You know, if you grab a wooden toy that's the wrong one, people don't take it all that badly, usually. If people get a trivia question wrong, though, it tends to make them feel stupid and... The wonderful thing about Timeline is that you're not actually answering questions. Instead, you're guessing whether a particular event happened before or after a certain other event. So you might start with the invention of the hypodermic syringe, which occurred in a certain year, and the year is visible out on the table. And then when it's your turn, you have to choose one of your cards in front of you. Maybe you'll choose the formation of the Earth, or maybe you'll choose the invention of the aeroplane, or the invention of penicillin or the invention of role-playing games and you'll pick one of those things and you'll put it out among the other cards in the right spot in the timeline so that it's not too early and not too late and then you flip it up and see if you're right or wrong if you're right you got rid of the card get rid of all your cards win the game if you're wrong card's gone and you take a new one to replace it now at first there's only going to be one card out in the timeline you just have to guess whether your thing comes before or after that but as soon as somebody gets something right now there are two cards in the timeline and you have to decide whether your card goes before either of them, after both of them, or in between them. Once there's a third card in the timeline, you've got a row of three cards in order of dates from earliest to most recent. And every time you play one, you have to put it in the spot where you think it belongs. It's just enough game to get people interested in the idea of playing rather than simply answering questions. And trivia games as a whole are sufficiently accessible and well-known that most people don't feel afraid to approach them, even if it's a better topic that they're not experts on, especially if they know that, even if they have no idea what the answer is, they've always got a shot. 
And that's why Timeline is one that gets so much mileage from me. Number eight. When I ask people what games they've played before, Scrabble comes up a lot, and for obvious reasons. It's a game that's had enormous popularity, it's been played for decades, and people like making words out of little letters. The thing is, though, that Scrabble's kind of played out. I mean, it still does see a lot of table time at the cafe. We have multiple copies of it in our collection, and for good reason. They do get played. But sometimes, people want something a little different. And in cases like that, the word game that I tend to bring out more than any other is Byword by the late, great Sid Saxon. I always mention it that way, talking about Sid Saxon, the grandfather of modern board game design, and just how much he's contributed to this hobby. Byword has a really simple pitch. It's another game with wooden tiles with letters on them that you collect. And in this particular word game, you buy letters and you sell words. The player who wants with the most money wins. That's usually enough of a pitch to get Scrabble players interested. And once it gets on their table, it's a very quick teach as well. You just take this bag of letters and shake out some wild ones for each player, put them back in there, give everybody 200 buy word bucks, set up the bank just like you would with the paper bills in Monopoly, and you're ready to start. On your turn, you roll a die. It's a two, then okay, take two tiles out of this bag, put them in front of you so we can all see them. And now you, take two tiles out of the bag, put them in front of you where we can all see them. Once everybody's done that, okay, player one, do you want to buy the tiles you just pulled out? Whenever you buy or sell something, you just add up how many dots are on the tiles. You know, the Z has four dots, the E has one dot. They'll have between one and four dots on them. Add up the dots, square the result, that's the price. So if there's like five dots in total on those tiles, so if you've got a Z and an E, that's five dots, that's 25 bucks. If you want to buy something with six dots on it, that's 36 bucks. Same thing when you're selling. People always get a little bit confused at this point because you're buying and selling at the same rate. So how can you ever be expected to turn a profit? Here's the thing, though. Supposing on one turn you buy some tiles, and on those tiles there are five dots. So you've laid out 25 bucks so far. And supposing you do it again next turn, buy another bunch of tiles, and on those tiles, once again, five dots. So so far you've laid out 50 bucks. So supposing you take that bunch of tiles that you've bought now and assemble them together to make a word that has 10 dots in it. 10 times 10 is 100. You just paid 50 and made 100. Buy low, sell high. That's what the game's all about. And whenever you have any group of tiles in front of you, you either buy them all or you don't buy any of them. You just pass and away they go. And the rhythm that this sets up is really, really clever and interesting because every turn, all the players get the chance to buy some stuff. And then, as long as you've got nine tiles or more, you have to sell. Put some tiles together and make a word, the biggest one you can with the most dots possible. Unlike in games like Scrabble, where it's mostly about making the little itty-bitty words, Byword is about the big, expensive words. That's how you make your profit. And it really helps having a couple of little wild tiles. Everybody starts with a couple of those at the beginning. And that makes such a difference because it means that you can really go all out and do something big and impressive and expensive and feel super smart and make a huge profit on it. Byword is a game that does really well for me amongst Scrabble players. And there's so many Scrabble players out there, there's no way I couldn't give it a spot on my top 10 list. Number 7. Here's a pitch that I wind up using quite a lot. This game is about looking your friends straight in the eyes and lying to them in a way that makes them feel sure that you must be telling the truth. Or, alternatively, it's about telling your friends the truth in a way that makes them feel convinced that you must be lying. So being bad at telling the truth is every bit as useful as being good at lying in this game. 
And the game's called Cockroach Poker, and it's got this bright orange box with this nasty-looking cartoon cockroach looking out at you, holding some cards, going, <laughs> And people gravitate towards that right away. Everybody likes lying to their friends for some reason. No judgment, honestly. But here's the thing. A lot of people will claim that Skull is the best simple bluffing game out there. To those people, I can only ask, have you ever tried to teach a table of drunk people who don't play games how to play Skull? Because if you had, you would always teach Cockroach Poker instead, because it offers everything that Skull does, but with the added advantage of not being an absolute nightmare to teach to people who don't play games. At the end of your, at the, at the end of your teach of Skull, the first thing that's going to happen is people are going to go, um, okay, so what do I do now? You just taught them the rules. But they have no idea what to do. Uh, should I play a thing? Yeah, play a thing. Okay, alright, so people just keep playing things and they don't know when it's time to start guessing. They don't know when it's time to start bidding. They don't know how much to bid. They're completely lost at sea. It's terrible. Unless you're dealing with people who are accustomed to playing games, in which case, why are you recommending something this simple? Now, silly question, obviously. Sometimes people want something simple. But the fact is, in Cockroach Poker, I can just deal out the cards and say to somebody, okay, here's the hard part. This is a cockroach. This is a toad. This is a fly, and so on. Go over the eight creatures, and one... Okay, everybody got that? Great. That was the hard part. Now, give me the cards. I'm going to deal them out. All I have to do, once those cards are dealt out, is say to the person on my left, okay, take a look at your cards, pick one, make sure you know what it is, slap it down on the table, slide it over in front of somebody else. Okay, look that person straight... Yeah, anyone you want. Go ahead. Okay, good. Now, look that person straight in the eyes, and tell them what card you just passed them. You're allowed to lie if you want. And they do it. And there's always giggling all the way around the table. And then I'll say to the other person, okay, you've got two choices. Option one, you can guess whether or not that was a lie. Option two, if you're not so sure, you can have a peek at that card and then pass it over to somebody else and tell them what it is. And you're allowed to lie or you can say the same thing, you say something else, whatever you want. Eventually, someone will guess. They'll say, okay, let's see if you're right or wrong. Hey, you were wrong. That card's yours now. Keep it face up in front of you for the rest of the game. That's a gross thing. It's living in your house. Enjoy. Or, if it turns out they're right, hey, you were right, okay, you got caught out, so this thing's living in your house now. Just, no, keep it facing in front of you the rest of the game. It's stuck. You're stuck with it forever. You're never going to get rid of it. And because you just got a card, it's your turn now. I'll let them do this a couple of times. I'll say, okay, so here's the thing about this game. In most games, you have one winner and everybody else loses. In Cockroach Poker, you've got one loser and everybody else wins. That's going to be the first person to have four of the same things sitting in front of them. Have fun, everybody. That teach gets people right into it immediately. It avoids all of the problems that tend to crop up in bluffing games of not being sure what to do, whether it's a good idea to play this or that or the other thing. Cockroach Poker bypasses all of it and gets straight to the fun part. And people often wind up playing it over and over again. It's absolutely indispensable. Number six. A question of scruples gets a bad rap. So many people talk about how it's destructive to friendships, blah, blah, blah. That's not true. I've never had a single friendship destroyed by this. And if you have, that's probably because the people who you lost those friendships with have a very, very different moral compass from you. And maybe aren't the kind of people who you wanted with friends as friends in the first place. So here's how this works. You've got a huge pile of question cards, and these are full of sort of thorny moral questions, like your teenage son tells you in strict confidence that a friend of his is using cocaine. Do warn the boy's parents. Or 
you're buying a house from a sweet little old lady and she's on a fixed income. She's asking way too little. Do you tell her? And the thing is, you don't win this game by being more moral than the other players. You win this game by correctly guessing how the other players are going to answer these questions with a yes or no or depends. So you've got an answer card. You've got a card that says yes, no, or depends. Nobody can see what it is. And you're going to try and find somebody who will say that. So you go through your list of questions. And if I've got a yes in front of me, then I'll try and pick a question I think somebody's going to say yes to. And I'll ask that person that question, and then they'll answer. If they say yes, good. I got rid of a question card. I'm now one step closer to winning. If they say anything else, well, I get rid of my question card, but I've taken a new one to replace it. So I'm no closer to winning than I was before. But here's what makes this game. If you believe the answer you received was insincere, you can challenge that person. The prosecution speaks first, just like in a courtroom. You have 30 seconds to convince the rest of the group that the answer to your question was insincere. And then the defense has 30 seconds to explain why it was sincere. Then you have 10 seconds to respond, they have 10 seconds to respond, and we put it to a vote. If you lose the vote, you get to take a question card from the person who won the vote. So they're one step ahead and you're one step behind. Getting caught lying is not good for you in that game. Of course, you can't challenge if somebody's down to just one card. That wouldn't be fair. The game would be over. But here's the thing. Scruples makes the game firmly about the players. And that's something that most people who are looking for just something that's fun or just something they can get into right away are really after. They don't want to have to learn a lot of complex rules, but... The rules of public society are the rules that are important in scruples. Those are rules that we've spent our entire lives learning and either following or sometimes disobeying, maybe for good reasons, maybe for bad reasons. But it's such a deeply human game that it's really hard to resist. The only kind of group I don't really bring this one out for is groups of even-numbered people, because sometimes the vote can get deadlocked. I always want to make sure that there's a definitive winner whenever there's a vote. So anytime I've got a group of five, seven, or nine players who just want something fun, Scruples almost always puts in an appearance. And that wraps it up for part one of my top ten games to recommend to players who haven't played something in a very long time and really don't have any idea what they want. I hope you enjoyed it. Part two is coming next week, on uh, Tuesday this time. Snake's Cast is produced by P.T. Douglas, and music is provided by Ben Sound. Opinions expressed on the show are entirely mine this time, and definitely not those of snakes and lattes. See you next time, everyone. Thanks for listening. Game on. Game on.